I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Okay, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're really happy today to have with us Professor Rob Morrison, zoologist, natural historian, and most of you probably know him from the Curiosity Show. Welcome, Rob. Uh, thanks very much. Mate, your show, fantastic. The Curiosity Show, we love it. And here you are today doing stage shows at Science Alive and still getting people involved in science. Well, it's, uh, it's kind of you. Uh, you know, I think uh, our audience, we, we're on air from 72 to 90, so the people who saw us on air are probably uh, getting on a bit, but it's now on YouTube, so we have a new generation to look after. Most of them in America and India, actually. <laughs> the Is beauty right? of the internet. So you've got a, you're a zoologist. Hmm. You've worked in zoos. You've worked for the Adelaide Zoo. You've, you've been on the board with Monato Zoo. I was chair of, uh, well, chair of the board and president for six years, yeah, both of them. You've seen a lot of changes in that time at the zoos? And oh, yeah. I mean, um, a lot of people still say, oh, zoos, captive animals, don't like that. But I differentiate between menageries, which are the old Victorian attitude of collecting everything and putting it in serried ranks of concrete and steel, and the more you had, the better. Uh, that's to me a menagerie and that's horrible whereas the modern zoo is really based on I think three main sciences genetics so we don't let the animals interbreed it's very expensive if you've got a tiger and you want the least related tiger to mate to it it might be in Berlin as it was with us and you've got to pay for that just to get a tiger that isn't related to yours and in the end they hated each other and wouldn't breed but, <laughs> but that, that's the length you go to to make sure that you keep genetic diversity in zoos right the other one, I think, is, uh, well, animal behaviour. If you look at enclosures now, and they're not just concrete and steel, they're usually ecologically strong, they've got the sort of plants that the animal had, often they're shared, so you have animals that can get along are in the same exhibit because they share the same habitat in nature. So it's a very, an animal behaviour, I think, would be the third, where we don't just put them in there and leave them there, we give animals enrichment, you make sure that the enclosure is suited to what they want to do. So if bears like to fossick for food, you hide the food and they spend all day fossicking. So those are, I think, three major sciences that the zoos today are looking at and they would be unknown to the menageries of old, which just had things like living museums, you know, one after another. So I, I like your point about the um having mixed species and like when you look at say that some of the big cats at the Adelaide Zoo their enclosures now are just you're lucky to see the cat because you're looking right into mm. the habitat and that's okay because mm. the, you're really showcasing the animal's environment not just here's an animal in a concrete box. Mm. Yes I think and, and I think we can uh, improve things too by putting in little hidden cameras so although it's not the same you can put a camera in a den for example so the animal is not at all disturbed, but you can see what's going on in the breeding den or in the... For a lot of animals are nocturnal, so people are not. They go into the zoo and they don't see anything in the daytime, but if they can see into the, into the den where the creature's doing stuff, that's really interesting. Um, so technology is helping us there. I, I think uh, I'm really quite proud of the fact that in my time as president, we got rid of those ghastly old lion and tiger. I remember as a kid, you know, you just look at these poor animals pacing around inside this. 
So that's gone, and we've we got the lovely new tiger and uh, orang enclosure. And that was, uh, that was a joy to me. That's awesome. What, uh, what, what do you think the main reasoning for, for the changes are? Was it public demand sort of education uh, that people started to understand? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's a number of things. Um, I mean, the Victorian era was very much one of domination. Um, I mean, the, the, the 1800s, around about there, was an extraordinary time in natural history because it was when the great expeditions were going out and discovering all this stuff and discovering new animals and finding a platypus and sending it back and people thought this was a hoax. Uh, and it defied taxonomy. You couldn't have a mammal that laid eggs. You couldn't have a mammal with a beak. So it, it reshuffled everything. We had the wonderful meeting in, I think, 1803 of Flinders and Baudin. And Baudin's French expedition, when it left, was the largest scientific expedition ever to have left France. Um, and Flinders, of course, had really top-notch uh, blokes on, on board for natural history. So all of that came back into Europe, and there was a great sort of revelation of, of what was out there, and Banks did his thing, and a lot of, a lot of really good natural historians were there at the right time. Uh, Darwin, of course, then came along. People call him a biologist, but he was really a, a natural historian. They didn't have, you know, they didn't think of it, those terms, the way we do. So all of that came back, and I think there's a much better understanding, and then an understanding of evolution, and I think less of the Victorian big game hunter domination thinking. Um, so I think all of that helped. And then, of course, the study of animal behaviour. I mean, Darwin was in on that. So people starting to realise that animals are not a thing apart to be dominated, but we are all on the same continuum. If there's one message I could get over to kids when they're being reared, is that they are on the same continuum as other animals. It's a matter of degree, it's a matter of kind, but it's not a matter of uh, being a different thing. And that that's where some of the empathy for the living world comes in. So I think some of that helped and then people started to look at these menageries and thinking, oh, this isn't too good and we can make them more interesting. Uh, so all sorts of elements came into that, I think, and it's uh, a full-grown movement now. In some ways it's gone, I think, too far the other way. Like, I think it's fantastic that we have empathy for animals and empathy for captive animals, but I think some people just are too quick just to shut down... The, any, any concept of any animal in any enclosure for any reason. Yeah. Yes, and it's worse in that um, for the best of reasons, we now have people saying, oh, gosh, you can't cull. You know, killing anything is wrong. David Attenborough, I used to... I had to look after him for a few days when he was here, and uh, we talked a bit about this, but, you know, people come up to him and say, can't you teach these lions to eat grass? It's so awful what they do. <laughs> <laughs> a complete lack of understanding of ecology. And I think sometimes, although we have to focus on endangered species, I think the focus on species can be counterproductive. We should really focus on the preservation of ecosystems in which those species live. Because, I mean, I, I absolutely love possums. I've hand-reared lots of possums. I put up nest boxes for possums. I, I really look after possums. But... I think that every possum in New Zealand should be killed. That sounds awful, but they're in the wrong place and they're doing extraordinary damage to, to uh, New Zealand's ecosystem. 
in the same way. I love rabbits. I think they're a fabulous animal, but I was for many years chair of the Anti-Rabbit Research Foundation. It's now Australia, uh, Australia Rabbit Free, I think. And I would like to see the extermination of all rabbits in Australia, although as an animal, they're wonderful, and I would fight for their preservation in Spain. Europe and Europe. Spain. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> so uh, that can go badly astray when the empathy for animals attaches to not hurting any animal. Uh, I mean, one of my dear relatives is a vegetarian, won't kill anything. So when he catches mice in his house, he lets them go in the national park. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot convince him to do otherwise, but, you know, I, I value the empathy. But it's the ecosystem we have to protect. If you can do that, the animals will look after themselves. That's exactly what we try to do here at the Aussie Wildlife Show. We, we call it the Aussie Wildlife Show and we hook you all in, guys, and then we just talk about habitat for a fair bit of the time because without it, there is yeah. no wildlife. It's funny, I had a neighbour who was the same as your friend and she would catch mice alive and she had a big tank in her house where she just kept all these mice to live out their years. <laughs> it's so strange. It's so well, that's strange. at least not letting them go. Yeah, that's right. That's I've right. Got a, yeah. a good friend who puts out milk for the foxes. Oh. <laughs> Um, but I mean, everything dies, and we're not talking about hanging these things and torturing them. We're talking mm. about euthanizing them, um, and humanely, it's probably a better way to die than how they would probably die in the wild. Um, whether they get hit by a truck, I don't know. Mm. Well, our, our thinking is extraordinarily Eurocentric still. I mean, there are many people in Australia who wouldn't think of eating something that didn't have hooves. Now, although I love kangaroos and I love emus. But, in fact, eating kangaroos and emus would, in many ways, if it was under control, be the best thing we could do ecologically for the country. Because if you look at this terrible drought going on now, you've got desperate cattle, you know, desperate sheep, but particularly cattle, thundering around on degraded land where all the vegetation's gone. You've got sharp hooves tearing up the soil. Um, now, of course, the kangaroos are suffering, but when the drought finishes, the kangaroos are evolved to bounce back pretty quickly. By the time you restock with new cattle, you know, it's a very expensive business. And, um, you know, in the meantime, we've got to cull kangaroos, and they're often left to rot. So that's an appalling state of affairs. We're not saving the kangaroos anyway but we're not using them as the sort of resource that they could be. So people say, oh, you can't eat the national symbol. The problem with that is that it shouldn't be a national symbol if it's going to stop you treating it in the right way. We should be, we should be using our animals properly, and that will also protect those animals. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And if you were to wear a kangaroo fur coat, you would be protested against, you would be shouted at on the streets, people would throw red paint on you, and yet we all walk around in cotton, which drains mm. the Murray River. Mm. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons for Science Alive, I think, where we are now, Everyone's very excited about bringing on these, these kids for, you know, the next scientific employees. We've got submarine builders and naval people here and they're sponsors of this, and that's fabulous. And I really hope that happens. But equally, I want to see the kids who come here going out, not necessarily being scientists, but having an attitude to science which is not negative and which is actually sort of literate because you can't pitch these arguments to people who really don't understand what ecology is all about. Um, and, you know, who don't see that you've got to sometimes be a bit tough in order to be kind. 
I mean, we do it with our pets. We wouldn't let them suffer. We'd, in the end, we'd take them to the vet uh, with much uh, heartache. I've just done it for two, two of my dogs, and it's not easy, but you understand the necessity of that. I think we've got to do the same with nature. We have to look at the broader and wider and ecological picture and make the right sort of decisions. People love to talk about the wilderness. I don't think there's any wilderness, certainly in Australia, probably in most of the world, that doesn't now have to be managed. The idea of wilderness being untrammeled and untouched by humans is simply false because we impact on everything, whether it's by ocean drift or pollution in the air or change of atmospheric composition, we're impacting on everything. So we have to manage even our wilderness. Yeah, very good point. Um, I want to ask you about your book, hmm. Tracks, Scats and Other Traces. No, that's, a, that's mixing mine with one that followed. I, I did. Oh, that's the Barbara Triggs book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I, I've got some photographs of mine she used in that. But mine was... Uh, the, the old, when Rigby used to be an Adelaide publisher, and it was the kind of... Um, it was the Australiana publisher of field guides, and it published a lot of wonderful field guides. And then it was bought out by a company I won't name, but uh, you know they thought you could treat books like concrete pipes, and it was folded quickly, and with it went all that wonderful publishing. But they uh, they did my uh, field guide to the tracks and traces of Australian animals before they went under, and that was the first one in Australia. It's still the only one I think on all animals, if you can say it's at least all taxa. We, we've met, and she's used some of mine in her reprint. Okay. Well, she was lucky enough to get a reprint. My publisher had gone. But. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, great resources. I mean, both books, because often, as you know, when you're out in the environment, you can hear animals, you, you see footprints, you see traces, but you don't always see the animal. And I think a lot of people go out into some of these ecosystems and could be mistaken for thinking there's not much there if they don't have much time to spend. But you're opening people's eyes to the signs that, you know, there are things like scratches on trees, um, you know, as we said, tracks, faeces, and everything else. Yes, uh, it's true. A lot of our animals are nocturnal, and so you don't see a lot of them. Um, the other thing, of course, is that you can see wonderful, mysterious marks. I think what animal made that? And it's a bit of dried seaweed, which has just been tumbling over in the sand. It's not an animal at all. But uh, it's good for children because it's detective work. If you find a bone, you think, well, what's that? And most kids wouldn't have a clue, but there are things you can look for. I mean, you only find one jaw. You can say, well, what did this eat? And you can tell from the teeth whether it's a carnivore, a herbivore, a sort of insect eater or an omnivore. And suddenly you, you've quartered the range of animals it could be. Then you look at size and you look at other things. So once you get kids working on that, they, they're becoming sort of forensic scientists of nature. And they love it. And there's a thing in the book that really doesn't belong in a field guide, but I couldn't resist doing it. And it's the, the way Aborigines will um, mimic animal tracks by using their hands. I mean, I can't really show this on radio, but if you put your hands side by side and press them, the edges, the little fingers, into the earth, okay, you're making two, two long furrows, then you put your thumb on its side the right thumb on the left mark and the left thumb on the right mark, you've got a kangaroo track. Ah, there you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want an emu, you put your finger and thumb of the right hand down on the soil, and then you put the finger and thumb of the right hand down with the finger overlapping, and you've got an emu, that sort of tri-part uh, track. 
And you'll see those in Aboriginal painting. The Aboriginal kangaroo track and emu track are very common. And they're, they're there. Well, I got Pitch and Jower to do this, and I photographed them for the book doing it. Uh, and they can make the tracks of everything. They can do <laughs> kangaroo and sheep. And, and for children round a campfire, that, where the campfire throws an oblique light, so anything in the sand really shows up, that is a magical evening, just making animal tracks. And you learn about animal footprint and form and how they move. It's such a lot you can just do round a campfire, which kids love anyway. So there's a lot in tracking and identification that's good for children. That's magic. I, sadly, I've met people who have never gone camping and therefore their kids have never gone camping and they're missing out on all of this. Mm. And they probably even say things like, I'm bored. And, you know, just that alone, just what you're talking about there. I mean, it's awesome. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, it's very hard on parents. A lot of them, I mean, one of the, the parts of the zoo that I really loved the most, particularly at the end, was the children's zoo. And, I mean, you blokes are really in this business where... I loved it because a lot of children, I'll go back a bit, I'm, I'm 75 now. When I grew up, I had a dog, we had, it was in Glenunga, we had two horses in the backyard. I'd rescue birds and bring them home, we had possums, you'd do everything. Your life was full of animals. Now you've got kids, both parents work, they can't have an animal, they live in a flat, they're not allowed to have an animal. And this steady divorcing from day-to-day contact with the animals you grow up with an animal, you're on that continuum. If you don't, then, oh, will it bite? Oh, you know, all that. So I'd see these kids coming into the children's zoo and they would touch living animal fur for the first time. You could see the connection. Or they'd hold a newborn chicken in their hands. You had to tell them not to crush it because they had no sense of how to hold it, but they wanted to. And, you know, it's only an afternoon, but, gee, you could see it's important just in that connection. So uh, I can't remember how I got onto that, <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's really valuable. And I think if parents worry, and they do, about their children having a contact with nature and want to take them camping, and the parents themselves don't quite know what to do, it can often be, as you say, boring, where it ought to be really exciting and really engaging. So I, I, you know, I think the more we can help in that regard, the better. There's so much to be drawn to in nature. I remember as a kid just going to a national park and it was just the sky's the limit. You've got so much going on, the sound, uh, the freedom. I mean, growing up, I grew up in suburbia and you had your backyard. You went outside, you had a footpath and you had a road with things flying down that were made out of metal and then everything else was trespassing or it was mm. a shop and you had to buy something. And, you know, the freedom of just being out in nature, it's a lot of people aren't even aware of so important. Yes, well, well, I grew up in suburbia too, but a bit before you, we just get on our bikes and thunder up to Stonyfell and all these great acres you could wander through, probably trespassing, I don't know, but <laughs> just big grassy fields to look at things, olive trees you could climb. Yeah. So the steady encroachment of suburbia makes it harder too. And, you know, you go down to the... I mean, we used to go and get tadpoles all the time. I look at waterways now, there are never any tadpoles in them, whether it's pollution or lack of frogs or what. The stuff just isn't there. So, uh, you know, the creeks may be there, but the life is not there in them in the same way. I mean, I used to go out um, and collect for the show. You'd, you'd sort of do stuff on spiders and put little... You can, you can cut a straw, you know, you, you flatten the end of a straw and you, you 
cut it to look a bit like a spear, so it's got two reeds. You blow through that, it gets <laughs> good vibration. Now, I can put that into an orb web and get and the spider would rush at the end of the straw because it was vibrating like an insect. It's years since up on my place where I don't use pesticides, I've seen an orb. I just don't see the cobwebs the way we used to see them. And I don't know where everything's going or why it's going, but it's certainly not as rich as it used to be. That's interesting. I live near you and I don't have any orb-weaving spiders either. Mm. Yeah, actually, I, just a quick, I just got to say it. Um, I only found out yesterday that we do live quite close to each other and I was both talking about our properties. We both got native bush on our properties and I said that we've just eradicated all our blackberry and you were a little bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in the process of cleaning out a shed and it's acquired too much stuff. But I'm discovering these ancient treasures, and one of them was my old flamethrower. Now, it sounds more formidable <laughs> than, it, than it is, but it's a tank you wear on your back, like a, like a knapsack spray. And there's a kind of wand that comes down with a bit of coiled copper and a nozzle in the middle of it. And I got this thing secondhand. It's very old. And the idea is you fill it up with kerosene, and it's got a pump. And you put the, the coil into a fire for a while till it gets hot, and that heats the kerosene in it. Then when you pump, the hot kerosene coming out of the nozzle, went through the coil and then out of the nozzle, would light up. So you had this beautiful flame about a foot long. As you kept the pressure up, the flame just came. And we had, we've got a five acre valley and the house is on the side closest to the road. It was an old pig farm. And it was completely overrun by pigs and then cattle and then blackberries. So when we took it over there, just blackberries, walls of blackberries and you, you, you get a couple of goats and they eat, I don't know how they eat blackberries but they do, in the end you'd make these sort of islands of blackberry and plunging the flamethrower into the heart of these was magic because it would light up all the dead wood and off it would go so my flamethrower was wonderful in clearing the blackberries off but I've now done that and I've got no use for the thing so when I heard you had blackberries I thought ah, I can sell him my flamethrower you got rid of them so I have to look for somebody else on the blackberry problem so if you're listening and you have a blackberry problem and um, I think we've just solved the problem of kids not getting out in the bush yet. there it is yeah. I think, yeah, that sounds awesome I think they'll all be out there now Mind you, I wouldn't do it where the bandicoots are or where the wrens are because often there's nowhere else for them. But we've replaced the blackberries with native stuff. So, oh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, we don't have bandicoots where we are. I'd love to, but we don't. Yeah, we don't. We don't have them there either um, where we are. So they're certainly around. I think they're around in the valleys. But yes. so you've got you've got a valley uh, where you are. Yeah, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of uh, coral fern though, which is nice. A really oh, rich wow. bed of coral fern, which is a bit unusual. It's mm-hmm. just the right habitat for it. And I planted, um, back in the days when you planted, yeah, when in the environmental movement, you plant natives. But in those days, we thought any native will do. So we've got a few things that shouldn't be there, like Sydney blackwattles and Tassie bluegums. Now, if you've got a soggy paddock, put in 10 Tassie bluegums. It'll be as dry as a bone in a few years. <laughs> These things suck up moisture. And I put a little clump of them down by the creek, and they've just... You know, the creek doesn't run past them, it's just dry and all the coral fern there is dark because there's no moisture. So the, the Tassie bluegums will go for firewood and they'll be replaced by something proper. But it'll let the coral fern come back in. But by crikey, these things can, uh, they can clear a swamp. They, well, they transpire hundreds of litres a day. Mm, mm, and um, you can see it just on this patch of land. So I put the wrong thing in there. 
that um, that coral fan's amazing. It's a, it's a threatened plant, and that needs mm. it's it's threatened because it needs sandy soil that's always moist. Mm. It's not much of that. Well, there's, I wondered why it was so good with us until uh, down the, the end of the creek. I, I got a bulldozers in one day to dig me a dam, and I wanted that for sort of you know wildlife and all of that. And they dig. He dug it in the middle of summer, and I swam in it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> And he, it's the only time I've dug, uh, driven a bulldozer. He got this damn thing bogged in it, and he had to get another D9 in. And he asked me if I could drive a bulldozer. I said, no, but I'd like to. So he sat me <laughs> in the one that was bogged, and he said, when I shout, push this. So I did, and this, he pulled the D9 out with me sort of driving it out. <laughs> and, um, but the reason is that they actually, this dam cut down into the uh, water table. So they explained to me why it was always so moist for the coral fern and the sand is right and it's just, just a happy little patch. So the coral fern is fabulous. I mean, you get lost in it. It's great big billowing sort of clouds of coral fern when you get down there. That's lovely. awesome. That sounds awesome. You have to come and look at it. Seen that. Yeah. Mm, it's yeah. really remarkable. I want to ask you about Lindy Chamberlain. Mm. Mm. So most of you are probably aware Lindy Chamberlain... The Dingo Stole My Baby. Mm. There was movies made about it. It was a very, very famous court case. She was in prison. She was guilty. She was out. She was innocent. She was back in again. Um, you had uh, some involvement in that case, I believe? Yes. Um, yes, it was, a, it was a, a torrid sort of exercise. But um, I was involved really because of that book on Tracks and Traces. The, the way it worked is that the, the first trial, the first coroner, uh, Barrett, probably got it pretty right. He said that the dingo had taken the baby, but somebody unknown had dealt, done something with the clothes. Um, but he also really castigated the Northern Territory Police, and, and it's believed that that got their backs up and they went for Lindy after that. But anyway, it was a, a, a tangled tale, but um, I was at work in Flinders when I was lecturing, and I got a letter one day, a very official-looking thing, and I opened it up, and it was from this lawyer, a fellow called Chester Porter. And this is when Lindy was now on her third trial, which is the mauling inquiry into the convictions of the Chamberlain. And it said he'd, he'd read my book and uh, found it dealt with dingoes and dingo tracks and dingo skulls and things. And in the first trial, the Aborigines asked uh, the Indigenous the representatives asked how they knew it was a dingo that had taken Lindy, described the tracks, gave one answer. In the second trial, their answer was sort of diametrically opposed to the first one. So this guy, who was really thorough, Porter, uh, said, could I reconcile the difference? So there we are, getting a white bloke to try and interpret blackfellas tracking, <laughs> which I've always admired. So uh, that, I said, I, I could do a bit of work. So I did some... I did some work on, um, I did a lot of plaster casting of dingo tracks and dog tracks. Uh, and that was interesting in itself. I went down to the beach to get a variety of dog tracks and that thunder through the sand and you get your plaster out and cast them. And the owners would come up and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm collecting your, your dog track for a murder trial. <laughs> they shoot through. But anyway, I took these, um, Casts in and, and to the mauling inquiry, and, and there was a one of the things that damned Lindy was this some idiot from England who was meant to be an expert on on uh, 
jaws and things. Instead, a dingo couldn't open its jaws the 10 centimetres required to take in the baby's head. And I'd seen these dingoes while I was casting their tracks, picking up my yogurt bottle of plaster and making up. They're lovely animals, they just wanted to play. They're grabbing this thing and rushing off with it. And I thought that was more than 10. So Chester Porter got really excited at that and said, could I help? And I said, yes, I could. And I went and got a, it was an Ingham's number six chicken, <laughs> deep frozen. So you couldn't squash it and you can measure it across. And that was 13 centimeters. And I, with their ranger, ran it under a hot tap so the skin was grabbable and just held it out to the dingo. And there's enormous jaws. This is a young dingo. Enormous jaws. Just grabbed this thing sideways and off it went with it. Didn't take it very far because it was ice cold and it didn't quite know what it had, but it took it off. So they can open, you know, pommy dingoes may not be able to, but ours can. <laughs> and so this was all quite um, useful to the inquiry. And... Uh, then the Australian Museum in Canberra, uh, the National Museum, I should say, has got a Chamberlain collection. And they asked if I could give my dingo prints and things to them, which I did. So that's all in the National Collection. But I kept the one which I think is really significant, and that we were filming for Curiosity Show at The Rock just a few months before Azari disappeared. And I've, I mean, when you look at it, the, these animals were, there was no restriction then. And these, these animals were breeding. I filmed the lair with three pups in it. There were three adolescents wandering around. There was mum and dad, and that was only one lair. And while they were very cagey while we were near the lair, as you got down to where people were queuing up to climb the rock, which you could do in those days, the dingo just trotted out of the scrub and lay down on the road and took bits of ham and cheese and God knows what from everybody. So they were used to being fed. Now Chester Porter, uh, because it was the, an inquiry, it, apart from the prosecution and the defence, who were the same as been in the first two trials, Chester Porter was part of the tribunal which was neutral and that engaged me and I was very pleased to be a, a neutral party. But he had actually done a nationwide survey of people who could have uh, verifiable accounts of their children being attacked by dingoes in, the, I think, the three weeks leading up to Azaria's disappearance. And he got seven, and these were verifiable accounts, and one involved a dingo grabbing a boy who was sitting in the front seat of the car and trying to pull him out. So they, you know, had all these dingoes, and they were breeding, they couldn't go anywhere, and they cut off their food supply and they cut off the dump. Now, what's a top predator going to do? It's going to go for anything it can get. And I think, you know, this, had this third inquiry been the first trial, I think it wouldn't have gone any further because they were thorough. And you wondered why the defence, uh, nice people, but you wondered why the defence hadn't undertaken the sort of work that this independent tribunal did because he was good. So it was interesting. I, I, was, I was talking with a nice old bloke during the trial and I was waiting for the plane to go home and... Uh, he turned out to be, I think, a, a great friend of the Chamberlain's. I didn't know this, but they came up and talked to him. And Michael said, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for the plane. He said, come back to our flat and have coffee. So I spent about three hours with him, and that was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and Lindy taught me another track, the Aborigines, uh, how they make the turtle in the sand. Oh, really? Yeah. You're fluttering your hands like that. I said, where'd you learn that? She said, Berrima Jail. Oh, really? <laughs> the Aborigines taught her that. Oh, Wow. No, no, it was interesting. But it was also sad. I mean, I, I, uh, 
I just saw this pathetic little jumpsuit that they'd discovered, which Lindy had always said the baby was wearing, and they couldn't find, so they said she was lying. And a tourist fell off the rock. English tourist fell off the rock, and uh, they hunted for him, and they couldn't find him for a while, and they found his body, and then while they were searching, they found this little jumpsuit beside a, a dingo lair. So oh. all bloodied, and uh, it was very sad, but... I said to Michael, I, I, you know, I feel very di- hard on, 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 the, on the stand discussing the dismemberment of your child in front of you. He said, I thought it was the saddest thing. He said, don't give it a thought. We've heard it so often it means nothing anymore. I mean, if I'd lost my child like that, I'd be, you know, yeah. distraught. <clears throat> They'd just been hammered so much on this. that They got absolutely hammered. Mm. So many people thought she was guilty if she looked sad, they, they thought she was faking it, if she, you know, it's, it smiled at any point, they said she was callous. I asked her about that, because in, in, I mean, when you're having coffee, you could not have, she had vivacious, attractive, funny, really, really lively person. I said, you're a bit different from this rather dour creature we saw in the press. She said, I was told by the lawyer not to smile or people would think I was heartless. So I didn't smile, and they thought I was heartless. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting, um, interesting time. The best bit of it was, it was only about two weeks for me, and I had to go over and do all these trials. But um, it was uh, exam time, and I, I hate marking. And all the exams had to be marked and in, and I was... I had no option. I had to be in this trial, and they had to be in before I could get back. By the time I got back, somebody else had had to do all the marking and put in, and I missed out on that year, and that was good. (laughs) (laughs) The good outcome. (laughs) But it was, I mean, a few, um, you know, these lawyers, I I remember in in some very grand hotel, these lawyers standing around saying, um, uh, you know, these these Aborigines are meant to be able to track. Why couldn't they, uh, why couldn't they... uh, Tell us properly. And I'll, I'll, your listeners can try this. Have you got a watch on? Uh, no. no. Uh, neither have you got a Well, that, that probably wouldn't work awfully well. But I've got a phone here that's got a, okay, a well, clock. Okay, well, I've never tried it with a God, phone. But so modern, Andrew. I know. Okay, well, try it with the, your listeners at home and see how they go. You cover up your watch and you don't look at it. Okay. This is not, you know, a party trick. You can win all sorts of things with this. But you say to people, how long have you had your watch? Do you know it well? Oh, yes, had it, you know, 15 years. You say, okay, what colour is the face? Are the numbers uh, Roman or Arabic? Are they on every number or just on the quarters? Where's the brand name? You know, often they'll get half the answers wrong. Now, if you think of taking these uh, Aboriginal trackers, now, because of the um, protocol in the group, often the, the people who do the tracking are the women, but the people who answer the questions are the men. Anyway, you grab these people, you just shot all their dogs, so you grab them and you take them. Well, the dogs were suspect, so the dogs were sort of shot and examined to see if they had ah, okay. content. You take them away from the place where they're happy and, and comfortable, and you take them to Sydney, or you put them into this extraordinary building in front of people dressed very oddly, and you quiz them in a language which is not their own about how they know how to do something. And then, if you're a lawyer, you think, well, they can't explain that well. They, I mean, we can all recognise our watch very well, but we can't necessarily recall and verbalise how we know it's our watch. It's the same as faces. We recognise faces, but if I shut my eyes, you couldn't tell me what colour my eyes were. So there's a tremendous gestalt which 
trackers have of saying, well, this is right, this is right, I recognise that. But if you ask them how they do it, it's hard to verbalise, especially in the wrong, wrong language. So it's not surprising to me that the Lancers made them look as if they weren't very good at it. They're very good at it. Are there many Aboriginal people in the country still using some of these techniques that you know of? Uh, yes, I think, although, although some of the really legendary trackers are dying out. One just died the other day, it's a very famous tracker. Um, but, I, you know, there are a lot of Indigenous groups trying to preserve um, customs, and uh, I actually had to do a video session with some of them. I mean, my learning curve was quite quick with some of this, in that I came along with storyboards and all of that, and bits of ochre, and I had a little story which I was going to get them to follow through, to discover only one of them could speak English, and that sort of not awfully well. So I thought, what am I going to do with my storyboards and script in English? Anyway, I said to this bloke, um, I mean, I, I should have... I said to this bloke, uh, you know, do you have a, a child? And he said, yes. And I said, how, how tall is he? And he put his hand out, you know, about waist height. So I set the camera at that height and I said, um, show him. And they just knew exactly what to do because our system of education is very verbal. And on television, it used to madden me. You get a good teacher. And with, the bloke came in with his archery set. We wanted to show archery. We had a target set up, and he had arrows and a bow. And I said, well, what's this archery all about? Well, he said, putting down his arrows and bows. And beginning to take. <laughs> I thought, just fire an arrow into the target, mate. But, you know, these, it wasn't verbal with them. They just do. Um, when, I did, when I got these blokes doing the tracks for my book, they couldn't speak English. They were very trouble. But as they'd, hear the, they'd put their hands, they'd hear the camera click, they'd do the next one, hear the camera click. The sequence of shots, there's no repeated shot. They just did it all the way through and went on to the next one. Fortunately, the exposure was right. And I said to them, do you do this for fun or for education? I got this blank look and he said, we do it. And I said, yes, but is it for education or for fun? We do it. And then I realised I was a dickhead. It wasn't the answer was wrong, it was the question. You do it. You don't distinguish, you just do it. So they'll do it, and the kids will do it, and they will learn, but you just do it. That's what they do. And, um, you know, the, the, this was a lesson to me, that if you make the camera the child, they'll show it. They won't talk at it, they'll show it, and they show it. And it was perfect. They just knew exactly how to do it. I think some of them are natural on television, whereas we still regard television as putting pictures to the spoken word. You turn off the television sound and watch it, you won't know what's going on. You turn off the vision and listen, you'll know exactly what's going on. Whereas for them, they couldn't speak, it was all show, and it's magic. So a very good and a different way of educating. Beautiful, that's beautiful. Rob, um, is there anything else you would like to talk about? You've got a lot of of fantastic stories. We can go anywhere with this. And also, I just need to check the time because you also have to be on stage very soon. It's it's 10.36. You've you've got an 11 o'clock stage appearance. I do, I do. I shouldn't guess back on. Oh, just perhaps one thing, (laughs) since you're in this business too. I I ran for a couple of years in schools the Nest Box Project. And that was to get kids to make nest boxes. We gave them the patterns for them and put them up ostensibly to see what came to them. And we did, and that was int- interesting. But it was really to get them to understand the value of hollows, because I think a third of houses are using firewood, 
And although we have laws to protect our living trees, we don't have any laws to protect the dead trees, which are now in many cases more valuable because the hollows are all that parrots and some possums and other, yeah, about 150 species have to live and breed. So the value of hollows in nature is really quite crucial. And artificial ones help. They're not as good. The birds know the difference, but they are better than nothing. So I'd encourage people to shove a, a nest box or two up and a bat box too and uh, try and overcome some of the enormous loss of these uh, dead and hollowing trees as we burn them all up. Yeah, no, you're quite right. And some of the, I think Burnside Council have um, a policy where they don't remove a dead tree unless it's uh, going to threaten you know, mm. personal property. Yes, uh, I spoke to them and asked when they trim them, can they keep the hollows? And they, I think they have, and people can get the hollows and put them up. Oh, that's oh, wow. interesting. That's, yeah. mm. I don't know if that's still going on, but it was for a while. It's a great idea. Yeah, you, you make a very, very good point, because a lot of people see that like the Mount Lofty Ranges, there's lots of trees there, so what's the problem? Mm. Um, but they don't realise those trees are young mm. and it takes years for trees to develop hollows. There's massive processes involved in those hollows developing and um, they may look like big, tall, healthy trees and they are, but they might be 100 years off of having mm. habitat for some of these things. And mm. As you know, we've lost things like, uh, you and I were talking about feather tail gliders yesterday. Mm. They used to be in the Adelaide Hills, Fasca Gales, and uh, we still have a few things hanging on, but we don't want to lose them. So no. yeah, nesting boxes. Yeah. I think it's great. And doing it with the schools like you're doing with your patterns and things like that gets kids involved in nature as well as well as helping the yeah. problems with the with the lack of of hollows so. hmm. well thank you very much fellas thank you yeah thanks so much rob guys thanks for listening i enjoyed that i love that that's awesome yes yeah. thank you very much thanks so much thanks, rob. rob good thanks, on you mate. Bye. bye see you later